Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Organized in conjunction with Charles Marville, photographer of Paris, this symposium, held on December 6, 2013 at the National Gallery of Art, offers new perspectives on art and urbanism in 19th century Paris. An international panel of art, architectural, and literary historians addressed the transformation of 19th century Paris in papers that focus on diverse topics, including the representation of Parisian quarries in 19th century photography, painting, and literature, the formative role of architect Gabriel David in reshaping Paris, the use of photography to map the changing city, new modes of transportation that shaped the experience and representations of the city, the impact of 19th century photography of Paris on 20th century film, and the relationship between Marville's urban documentation and contemporary photographic practice. The fifth lecture was given by Nancy Locke, Associate Professor of Art History at the Pennsylvania State University. I have to say, having just seen The Outskirts of Paris by Van Gogh in, in Holly's lecture, I mean, that comparison, seeing the Marville, Rue d'Ampoule, which reminded me of the Van Gogh and, and its invocation and the introduction to T.J. Clark's Painting of Modern Life, was really the genesis of this talk. So I'm very glad you showed that, that incredible Van Gogh. Some objects tell us so much about the past that they become illustrations to history rather than works of art. The photographs of Charles Marville are a case in point. It is hard to imagine a set of works that could be more explicit about the form of 19th century Paris. Street after street, cul-de-sac, impasse, canal, lamppost, kiosk, uh, all are precisely documented. There are so many detailed views that one can almost imagine some Google Street view of the future actually assembling them into a searchable reconstruction of the 19th century city that would enable us to visualize a walk <clears throat> in Baudelaire's footsteps. Something curious and paradoxical happens, however, when we try to integrate the knowledge of the city's physical fabric visible in Marville's photographs with that gleaned from the literature on the city. The overwhelming problem is that the literature concerns Parisians, and very few Parisians appear in Marville's long exposures. In our attempt to understand one of Marville's street scenes, we might reasonably turn to Balzac, or to one of the Physiologie, or to one of the guidebooks that catalog Parisian neighborhoods. And in every case, we're likely to read a colorful story about how lawyers dress, or who lives in that quartier, or how she was one of those women who. The guidebooks characterize Paris by describing Parisians, professions, classes, habits, manners. It would appear that Marville gives us the physical fabric of the street, whereas the guidebooks, like Balzac, tried to describe the social fabric. And yet, we have to remember that a Marville photograph is first and foremost an image whose relation to the world is highly mediated. An image cannot establish a precise equivalence with the social fabric of the city, nor with its physical fabric. As Sartre would have it, an image is a consciousness of something. It records our human place in the world. It embodies a relation we have to something in the world. So often, art historians think about an image in terms of its fidelity 
Does the painting show us what was actually there? Is the photograph, though surely contingent on the physical and visible evidence of the motif, nevertheless accurate? Perhaps instead of always thinking of one of Marville's photographs in relation to the physical reality of a particular Paris street, we should think about it as a record of a relation between the image and a 19th century Parisian. Walter Benjamin has written, for it is not the foreigners, but they themselves, the Parisians, who have made Paris the promised land of the flaneur, the landscape built of sheer life, as Hoffmannsthal once put it. Landscape, that, in fact, is what Paris becomes for the flaneur, or more precisely, the city splits for him into its dialectical poles. It opens up to him as a landscape, even as it closes around him as a room. Benjamin's dialectic of the flaneur becomes a productive way of seeing Marville's photographs. The city opens up to Marville as a landscape when he photographs the Boulevard Henri IV under construction, or the villages past the walls of the Fermier Généraux that were brought within the city limits in 1860, Montmartre, La Villette, Belleville, Charonne, Ivry, Gentilly. I would like to look at Marville's photographs of one of these banlieues, specifically Belleville, in the vicinity of the Carrière d'Amérique, or the America quarries, that became part of the 19th arrondissement at the time of the 1860 annexation. So here's a map, and in case you weren't here for some more detailed explanations um, this morning of the annexation, I'll just remind you, here's the Ile de la Cité, and so right bank, left bank, right bank, left bank. The old boundaries of the city are these inner arrondissements, and in 1860, Haussmann annexes these outlying areas. So I'm going to be focusing on this area, mostly now the, the 19th. Like all the 19th century banlieues, the village of Belleville was undergoing profound transformations even before the annexation. So here we're zooming in to just that 19th area, Belleville. The population in 1790 stood at only 1,600, but increased to 57,000 in 1860. Like Montmartre and other peripheral neighborhoods, however, Belleville still had an almost rural character compared with central Paris in the mid-19th century. The section known as La Courtie, which you see here, uh, known for its tax-exempt outdoor wine gardens and ganguette, had a reputation for gaiety well before Montmartre and was the site of special celebrations during Carnival, as we see in this Daumier drawing uh, coming back, you know, the, the descent from La Courtie with the clown and the trained bear. In terms of its relationship to Paris, there was a long history of what Richard Cobb has called the politics of panic and mistrust dividing Paris from the inhabitants of its immediate periphery. Here we're looking toward Paris from Louvicienne. 
The new city boundaries of 1860 did more than enlarge Paris's tax base. They redrew the ideological map of a territory that was treacherous in more than one sense and had existed as an other to Paris for centuries. Neighboring La Villette was the site of the spectacular 13th century Montfaucon gibbet, closed when the Hôpital Saint-Louis was built, but in its day a kind of mega-scaffold on which up to 60 people could be hanged. Beginning in the early 17th century and lasting well into the 19th, Montfaucon became a dumping ground for the city's trash and a slaughtering yard for old and sick horses. The physician Perron du Châtelet wrote in 1833, if you can conceive what can be produced by the putrid decay of piles of meat and guts exposed in the open for weeks and months on end to the full glare of the sun and left to swell and rot, and if you then imagine the kind of gases likely to be given off by piles of carcasses with much of the offal still clinging to them, you will get only a faint idea of the truly repugnant reek from this sewer, the foulest imaginable. The dumping ground adjoined the Butte de Chaumont, a hill, literally Mont Chauve, or Bald Mountain, of about 300 feet in height, cut through by excavations for quarries in which sand, building stone, plaster, and clay were extracted. The hillside had been the site of a bloody conflict in 1814 when Russian, Prussian, and Allied forces under Blücher began a siege that led to the surrender by Parisians after one bout. The battle was one of the key moments in Napoleon's downfall. Haussmann slated both trash heap and battleground to be thoroughly transformed in 1866-67 and his protégé Alphonse and Barrier created the Parc des Buttes Chaumont. Although the park was roundly criticized in the 1860s for its cost, it was eventually judged to be one of Haussmann's successes. It featured a 65-foot grotto with a waterfall constructed over a former quarry entrance. Alphonse wrote of the sinister and repulsive physiognomy of the area in which he had established une promenade pittoresque. East of the Butte de Chaumont, so here is that park, the Butte de Chaumont, so now we're going to concentrate on this area just east of it, which had been called the Butte de Beauregard, and here is where the plaster quarries continued to operate in Marville's time. These quarries rose in importance after the ban on further work in the gypsum plaster quarries of Montmartre, the source of the original plaster of Paris. Cuvier had made key discoveries in the Montmartre quarries, such that the place figured in the 19th century literary imagination of Balzac and others as holding the key to the past. Géricault, too, had represented a plaster kiln in neighboring Montmartre, such kilns on site at the quarries would have heated the gypsum to about 300 degrees Fahrenheit to produce the plaster of Paris. The Belleville plaster quarries, and this map uh, actually shows us the fortifications, and so this is marked here, and you also see the railroad, uh, the, the Chemin de Ceinture, the railroad that encircles Paris. So here's where we'll be concentrating. They are three stories deep, 
and they're called the Carrière d'Amérique. It's an expanse of almost seven and a half acres on the surface, beneath which over 400,000 cubic meters of mass were excavated by more than 100 workers. With its complex honeycomb structure, quarry entrances, and available <clears throat> firewood for the plaster kilns, the Carrière d'Amérique had a reputation for criminality. And this is actually uh, an engraving of a, uh, an etching of a police roundup in the Carrière d'Amérique. It provided ready hiding places for bandits. Théodore Labrieux did not need a more explanatory title for his 1868 crime drama than the name of the place itself. And that same year, the so-called Angelo de Sor opted for Le Drame des Carrières d'Amérique for his novel of shadowy dealings in the quarry. Louis Bloch's anecdotal study of vagabondage makes ample reference to the carrière in the 1880s as giving shelter to many a homeless person. Charles Viermaitre paints a vivid picture of an improvised plein air New Year's Eve party in the quarries, stocked with stolen champagne and delicacies. La Bédolière tells us that its uneven terrain, coupled with the debris falling from the vaults and the stagnant water pooling in crevices, resulted in vast stretches of a mixture that could make for treacherous working conditions. Its chalky but muddy character gave rise to the name moutard, mustard, and it was not unusual to hear a cry of alarm, un homme dans le moutard, man in the mustard, and to see workers running from the site. The crime novel by Angelo de Sor stages a scene of this sort in which a character is taken to an obscure corner of the quarry in search of something buried. He is then pushed and left to disappear into the sand. These colorful stories are no doubt embellished, as the literature on Paris in the 19th century was stocked with such anecdotes. Once you left the Butchaumont and the petty thieves of the Carrière, you were liable to end up at the, this square, the Place du Combat, where you might well encounter, according to La Bédoyère, a bear trainer and his magnificent bulldog. And this is actually Manet's bear trainer, but I couldn't resist putting it in. It is perceptions that interest us, though, and the reputation of Belleville at mid-century associated it with crime. In Marville's work, the America quarries do not look like the haunt of criminals. We seem instead to be in some nondescript space in which the city runs out. Henri Le Sec also photographed the Carrière d'Amérique at the site of the construction of the Butte Chaumont, in a salted paper print done about a decade before Marville's. For Le Sec, the quarries form an imposing, fantastic landscape. There is very little sky in the picture. One can see the architecture of Paris in the distance, but the dune-like mounds, yawning craters, and steep slopes dominate the visual field. It is hard to say what the foreground is like in Le Sec. Where is he standing? What is actually near us? We hover, as it were, before these looming mounds with no clear path of access. Le Sec emphasizes the strangeness or otherness of the quarry site by not 
giving us much help with scale and by not placing us on secure footing. With its absence of scale, the photograph predicts effects exploited by Brassai in the 1930s with his troglodytic views and his involuntary sculptures, the photographs of very small things like bent nails and shells, but photographs so that you can't see the scale. Le Sec does not show us bandits hiding in the hollows, but his abstract landscape becomes a blank slate, a screen onto which we can project rumors, cliches, fantasies of the carrière. Here, one can certainly imagine an industrial accident, a worker down, even a body made to vanish over a deal gone bad. It seems as if Le Sec almost loses himself to the relative newness of photography and to the ability of this new medium to deliver an image that is foreign and difficult to read. Marville's images of the carrière are entirely different, and this is the one I'm showing that's not in the show. The others you'll recognize. Far from Le Sec's mysterious and forbidding dunes, Marville's quarries look like accessible work sites. We can readily imagine walking right onto the rugged ground before us. Marville approaches the subject the way Baudelaire would write a prose poem, or the way Pizarro would paint a potato harvest. Like Pizarro's field of orange clay tash, Marville's foreground renders clumps of earth, the tracks of a cartwheel, gaping holes filling with water where the ground might give way underfoot. The figures, rare in Marville, are of course more minimal than Pizarro's laboring women and men, but they stand, men and child, next to the cart and its beast of burden. One can understand why the workers almost seem to cling to the structure. If the foregrounds have a similar feel, the relationship of foreground to the rest of the landscape is entirely different. Pizarro's distant hills rise steeply. Marville frames his landscape with a kiln shed and a butte, then imaginarily completes the line begun by the muddy foreground tracks with the tree-lined street leading toward the city. The nondescript work area in front of us abuts the order of the city beyond. We are standing in a place that the 19th century viewer would call the terrain vague. Le Sec's photograph captures too much abstraction, too much pure otherness of the Carrière d'Amérique to represent the terrain vague, but we see this zone in Marville's work, notably in this photograph because of its juxtaposition of cityscape and the rather undefined space before us. In Marville's other photographs of the Carrière, the city either dominates, as it does here in this view taken from the Rue de Mexico, now Rue Manin, in which the quarry area looks safe, tame, well demarcated with fences and portals, or is almost entirely absent, as in this view that recalls Jericho's Montmartre plaster kiln. We see the shed, the cart, the distant butte with the team of horses on site. The photograph entirely concerns the quarry as workplace. 
In comparison with Jericho's focus on structures, horses, and smoke, Marville does make the subject into more of a landscape, opening up the space around us, organizing our view into the distance. The wooden planks and sections of makeshift track lie along perspectival lines almost like the fallen swords and shafts of Uccello's Battle of San Romano, and Marville's lens miniaturizes the distant workers as much as Uccello did, though clearly without the triumphal main actors. We get the sense that Marville has taken the improvisatory character of the worksite and made a certain order out of it. He has taken a vast space and shown its scale, but also its definition. For Walter Benjamin's Flaneur, we remember, Paris becomes a landscape. It is very much a classical landscape in the last two views we examined. The quarry image has an organizing geometry, and the view from the Rue de Mexico, distinctly reminiscent of Turner's Mortlake Terrace, suggests a civilized promenade. Marville, with his history as an illustrator, could have known Turner's painting through the engraving by W.J. Cook. There is even a certain echo between Cook's vertical lines uh, representing the wall along the shore and the vertical lines of the fence in front of Marville's quarry. In the view taken from the fortifications, by contrast, the landscape is framed but not classical. Here, Marville wants to open up the muddy ground before us and show it in close proximity with the tree-lined street. He wants us to feel the provisional character of the terrain vague. To 19th century persons familiar with views that were primarily urban, rural, or village, the terrain vague offered an unsettling juxtaposition of order and openness. And this is the, the chemin de ceinture, the railroad that goes around the edge of the city. One can hardly speak of a built environment, as the terrain vague presented a newer structure amidst a kind of unplanned remainder. The architect and theorist Ignacy de Sola Morales has written that it was actually the art of photography that revealed the character of the terrain vague. For him, it is problematic that the impulse of architecture was always to impose rationality and order on extra-urban spaces that are fundamentally disorderly. Although Sola Morales was writing about cities in the 1970s, the architect's position tallies well with the particular circumstances of Belleville in the middle of the 19th century, the proximity of Alphonse Stamp on the Butte Chaumont loudly proclaims the contrast between the rationality of housemanization and the spaces left over or not yet organized by it. And this is actually a view of the area formerly the quarries, but from 1954. For Sola Morales, the terrain vague are interesting because they are uncolonized and open. That is what is good about them, and perhaps modernization is not what they need. The carrières are like this. The dangers articulated in the literature on Paris might even serve to remind us that the quarries represent a zone of relative freedom. 
Another of Marville's views of the neighborhood around the Carrière represents the terrain vague, the Rue d'Aupoule, a view taken from the Rue Campan looking north toward La Villette with the quarries at right. The street had long been the principal connector between Belleville and La Villette when it was renamed after a Napoleonic general in 1865. The work is a study in contrast. Lamp posts, but also gutter down the middle of the street. Trees close at hand, but also a definite glimpse of just how industrial La Villette already was in 1877, far from the towers of Notre Dame and Haussmann's monumental vistas. In Marville's view, we are leaving Paris. The city center lies behind us. The days of coming to Belleville for tax-free wine are over. Keep walking. The way is clear. You will not have to make way for the lone carriage in the road, but it is not the Emerald City that awaits. Here, the quarries are almost quaint, not so much a far-flung place you wouldn't dare to venture as a memorial to a Paris that no longer exists. The second term in Benjamin's dialectic of the flaneur was the opposite of the landscape-like quality of the Rue d'Aupoule photograph. Benjamin had said of the flaneur that the city opens up to him as a landscape even as it closes around him like a room. Marville knew intimately the metaphor of the street as room. He may well have invented it, as we see in his photograph of the Passage Saint-Guillaume. Benjamin had compared the shop sign on the street to the oil painting on the wall of the drawing room. Hundreds of Marville photographs, whether of streets or impasse, could complete the circuit to link the street, the arcade, and the domestic interior. Most of Marville's street views from pre-Haussmann Paris could lend themselves quite well to Benjamin's analysis. All this talk of landscape and interior, though, was in the service of another dialectic of the Flaneur. What Benjamin had seen in Poe's Man of the Crowd were the seemingly contradictory wishes of the man who feels himself viewed by all and sundry as a true suspect, and on the other side, the man who is utterly undiscoverable, the hidden man. We often speak of the desire of the Parisian flaneur to see and be seen, but the compliment to appearing for the flaneur was disappearing. Marville photographs Haussmann's new boulevards with vistas that differ sharply from the enclosed spaces of the streets and the passage. Yet it is in the spaces of the Carrière d'Amérique, the place where, if the writers and guidebooks were right, you really could disappear, where the 19th century Parisian was most exposed, most out in the open, no longer in the city, but in a landscape. An image is a consciousness of something, wrote Sartre. And when we look at photographs, we often see that consciousness, we often see that consciousness as a perceptual one. In this Marville, we see the signs of work all around us, the roughness of the workyard, the mud on the wheel, the broken cart marked with an X. But the photograph is not merely a residue, 
a record of a place, however much Marville's view camera captures, and however the foreman, the workers, and the team of horses stood still for his exposure. We art historians and amateurs can get very wrapped up in what an image, especially a photograph, documents, what it matches or contradicts, whether it is clear or obscure. But Sartre also talks about the imaginative consciousness as well as the perceptual. The imaginative consciousness does not merely perceive in a passive way. It produces and holds on to the object as an image. As such, it has a vague and fugitive quality. For all its specificity, the Marville has a fugitive quality as well, as Marville captures one or maybe two chickens in front of the fence, and a white blur to the right of the fence registers the movement of someone or something that did not stand still. Sartre goes on, it is due to this vague and fugitive quality that the image consciousness is not at all like a piece of wood floating on the sea, but like a wave among waves. Sartre's metaphor of the wave reminds us of photography's and Marville's best qualities. The images reach out toward their objects, the changing landscapes of Paris. They capture so much just before the object disappears. And then, like a wave, another one comes in. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.